0: Morning, are we? We are in the uh, the fourth week of our problematic passage series, and uh, we shouldn't be moving ahead yet. There you go. Uh, I gave you a sneak preview. Um, by the way, uh, we've had way more passages that we've had submitted than we have time and weeks to cover. So I want to encourage you. If we get to week seven, and somehow. You know, maybe you're itching and you're hoping, please cover the one that I've... Uh, if, if we haven't talked about a passage that you'd submitted, um, you know, there's this crazy thing that you can do. Now, bear with me. This might sound nuts. But you can always just get coffee with your pastor and, and talk about these things. Um, I would love to do that. So if you have a burning question or something that, you know, once we get through seven weeks of this is sitting in your mind, you're like, well, what about this? You didn't go there. Um, I would love to just connect and talk and work through these things. That's one of the things that I'm here for. So uh, as your pastor, you know, myself or, or elders, if you want to connect with them, you're always free to do that. And we'd love and encourage you to do that. And if you're wondering, like, well, I don't want to take his time. Um, but some of the stuff that I love doing most, especially the coffee part. So always be encouraged that <laughs> we don't forget about you. We don't love you less. Uh, it's just, you know, there's seven weeks. And I think there was like 18 people or something that <laughs> submitted. Things. And so we want to make sure that we're cognizant of that. But please feel free to always reach out. Um, our submitted passage for today is, is Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 8. And the, the question that comes with it is a question that I think everyone in this room who would com- proclaim or call themselves to be a Christian at some point, has asked. I'd, I'd be pretty shocked if you hadn't at some point wrestled with this question. And so it's one that's, you know, came from at least actually three different people, um, not all from Hebrews, but the question is the same. And the question is this As a Christian, can I, under some circumstance, lose my salvation? Once I have it. Right? In other words, when you become a Christian, you are saved. The Lord comes into your life. He is your savior, your king, your Lord. Is there is there a way or something that you can do? Or is it possible to fall from the grace of God in salvation once you have been granted it? That's the the question that we have posed. And and Hebrews 6 is one of the passages we'll look at today. Um, that was the one that was submitted. Um, there's actually a couple others, um, all, most in Hebrews, and so we'll look at some others as well that are a little more blunt even or more hard to understand than Hebrews 6, but that's where we're going to be this morning. So I would encourage us to stand. As always, we read the passage first, uh, and then we'll, we'll dig in together. So This is Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. Find verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now stay standing. Because... There's there's another passage, in case this is kind of not condemning enough to us, uh, a little bit later, a couple chapters down the road in Hebrews 10, um, it's put a little bit more bluntly even again, so let's just read that one as part of our our spiel for today, and we'll, we'll get into both together when we get there. Hebrews 10, verses 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Hard to say, but this is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So this is a, a pretty difficult set of passages to wrestle with, right? They certainly seem to suggest <clears throat> that it's possible. Like for those that are under grace and they, they go on sinning, the first one talks just about the falling away nature of things. The second one gets into like the deliberative sin. Anybody here feel like they've deliberately sinned in the past couple weeks maybe? Right? Like if you've deliberately sinned, no, nothing but judgment left. Like grace removed. These passages seem to pretty clearly suggest that there is a case for when Sin or the removal or the falling from grace or the abandoning of God on our end constitutes the loss of salvation in return. And so it's a, it's a hard passage to deal with. And quite frankly, these aren't the only two that deal with that. These are some of the most blatant, most obvious. But we see this throughout Scripture show up a couple times here and there. And so there's really three ways that we can look at this passage. And we'll name them and then we'll we'll get into them a little bit down the road. But here's the three kind of interpretations, if you want to say, that we've seen offered for for passages like this. The first is this. Those who fall in the passages are actually true believers who are actually really losing their salvation. So there's people that are followers of Christ. They're Christians, so to speak. Genuine, faithful Christians. And they have caused themselves to somehow fall from the grace of God, actually having lost their salvation. That's view one. Number two, there's those who are elect in Christ. Christianity, right? Those whom God chooses. And then there's those who are regenerate, those who come to Christ. They come to be Christians. They proclaim the name of Christ. They're genuine too. But God doesn't pick everybody. And so only those who God picks get to be a part of things. There's a certain degree of that that you'll find in, like, Lutheranism, for instance. Uh, it's not usually said that blunt, but that's kind of where it, where it goes. That's view number two. and then there's the reform view that we'll get into a little later that it's not passages that are about true believers, but passages about people that are imposters pretending to be Christians. So those are kind of the the three that will that we'll hit on as we, as we go through this. but I, I want to answer the, the question before we get into any of this in its simplest form, so that no one here has to spend the next half an hour or so being paranoid. The the simplest answer to the question, can you as a a true Christian lose your salvation, is no, you cannot. And we could just pray and end it there and all go home and feel comforted and refreshed and renewed. Um, There is no way that you can lose your salvation. And so with passages like this, the best thing that we can do is to step back before we step in and take a look because the Lord has given us this whole word. Not just individual, isolated verses. He's given us the whole breadth of Scripture. And so it's important with things like this that we look at all other Scripture and we start to see the various things that God says about salvation and how he does or doesn't save or preserve his people. So here's just a couple, just to kind of get you into the the mood of this. Um, Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So so the one who begins a good work, if you are a Christian, he has begun a good work in you, there is a sure and certain promise he will bring that work to completion. You might feel times of life where you're distant from God. You might fall away from him. You might feel like he's abandoned you. You might struggle through various things. But listen, the Lord promises, if you're his... It doesn't matter what your ebb and flow of life is. He will bring this to completion. Here's another in John 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's a pretty secure sounding passage to us. Here's another from Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we, Christians, followers of Christ, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, this is Paul writing, that neither death nor life, Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when we look at scripture in a broad sense, what becomes quickly apparent is there is a whole lot of assurance that once Christ has you, that he holds you. And that there's no thing on earth or in the outside of realms beyond earth that could somehow get in the way of that. Right? That's what we see. Pastor and author Vodia Bakum has, has a famous quote. He says, if you could lose your salvation, you would. <laughs> right? It's funny, but what, what, does he, what does he mean by that? If you could lose your salvation, you would. What he means is that the author, holder, and perfecter of your salvation is the absolute key to this whole thing. If you had anything to do with being saved in the first place, you most certainly not only could, but would screw it up. Right? And So what we believe as, as, as Christians who would call ourselves reformed in the faith based off of the things that came out of the Reformation right in the 1600s, you would, you would say that when you are saved, it's not that you somehow did something. It's that God called you. God chose to save you. He is the initiator, enactor, enabler of the faith that you possess. Right? That's why we say things like, I was blind, but now I see. It's not like you were blind and all of a sudden you went, here's my eyes. No, you were blind and he opened your eyes. We believe that apart from the intervention of Christ, we are totally and utterly hopeless and helpless. And Christ comes in, enables us to see him clearly, picks us up, cleans us off, and then makes us new. And that's how we're able to follow him, to see him, to even make such a thing as a choice to be a part of what he has for us. And so God is the one who does the initial saving from initiation to completion in every way. You have nothing to do with it. There's the, the the kind of the metaphor of the handshake, right? Where when you hold someone's hand, like you go like this. But if you want to hold someone's hand securely, you do this thing, right? Because if this is God and this is you, and you're like this, when you let go, does God let go? No, right? Versus this, you just slip. The Lord has you securely. And so when when Bauckham says, if you could lose your faith, you would, what he's saying is, if you somehow had anything to do with the fact that you were saved, if any of your merits or things you've done or choices you've made or accomplishments that you could boast had anything to do with your salvation, well, yeah, you could most certainly lose it. Because we're sinners. We're messed up. We're jacked up. And we would find a way to screw it up. Every time. But it's not up to us. And so, since God is the one who holds your salvation, He is the one who secures your salvation. And so, as a Christian, you don't wonder whether you are in fact saved. Because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. He holds you. Well, I feel like over the last couple of years, I just I feel a distance from the Lord. I, I don't feel like I'm walking with him as I should. That might be your perception, but God has you securely. He holds you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The Reformed view holds that God calls you to himself, that you are deeply embedded in sin, that you're unable to pull yourself up, and he calls and enables you, and then he chooses to save you. Not because you deserve it, but just because he does. Because that's what God wants to do. And so you can't lose your salvation as a Christian because it's not yours to lose. Right? It's just not yours to lose. God's the one holding you, He does all of the saving. And so your salvation is perfect because He is perfect. So if we can't lose our salvation, then what do we do with passages like Hebrews 6 or 10? Let's let's focus our attention particularly on Hebrews 10. Uh, And the reason for that is because um, it it helps us tremendously, both because it's more blunt and because there's some great language stuff in here that really helps us dig into what this passage actually means. There's two key linguistic issues that we have to look at to interpret Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. The first is the translation of go on sinning. So when we say, for if we go on sinning, the Greek here for sinning is what we call a present active participle. Now we're getting into grammar lessons. Vince, I hate when you preach and there's grammar lessons. I didn't like them in school. I don't like them now. Sometimes they're important. You just got to stick with me. I hated grammar in school too. But when we have a present active participle, what it means is that it's not an action that we committed once. It's not a for if we sin or if we sinned or if we commit that sin down the line then we have received nothing in the sacrifice for our sins, but expectation of judgment onward, onward, onward. But it's a go on. It is an active participle, which means it's a continuous, ongoing thing. So in other words, for if we just keep going on with life the way that we want to go on with life, if we say we are in Christ, but man, we just, you, just, like, you don't act like you're any different at all. It doesn't seem to have shaped you or changed you or caused you to want to move in any way towards obedience, but it's just, you just kind of keep going on with the way that life was before you came to know Christ, right? So number one, there's that issue. So this, this falling away is not brought on by a particular sin. Rather, the sense here is that we're talking about those who continue on in deep sinfulness, ongoing, over and over again with no sign of stopping or slowing down, right? The second word that we focus on is the word deliberate. For if we go on sinning deliberately, the Greek here is is hekousios, communicates this really deep intention and fervor. Anywhere else you see this used in in Scripture, it signifies this very deep intentional action with gusto behind it. So the implication here is not just for those who sin, there's judgment reserved. In other words, well, if you're a Christian, but you keep doing bad things, well, then God's judgment and no how... It. No, he's saying, look, for, for if you claim the name of Christ, but all we see is just ongoing habitual sinfulness that, that's really, like, fervorous and intentional and deliberate. Right? In other words, you are actively, consciously, with all your right mind factions choosing to rebel against the things that God has for you as if you don't really care what he has to say and you just keep going on like that. Right? If that's you, well, there might be some judgment reserved for you. Right? But still, if, if all who are saved are saved to the end, right, and if there's nothing that can separate a Christian from the love of God, well, it seems to say, then, well, can deliberate ongoing sin? It's so like nothing. Neither angels, nor demons, nor anything that was or anything that is to come. None of those things can separate us from God. But habitual ongoing sin can definitely separate you from the love of God. No, right? That, that seems very contradictory. And so this is where we return to those original three ideas of what these passages can mean, right? The first was there's believers that are genuine who can lose their salvation. The second was there's kind of people who think they're you know, there, there, there's believers who truly claim the name of Christ, live their whole life for Christ, but God hasn't chosen them, so when they die, it's like, eh, too bad, right? And then there's the third of, well, there's imposter syndrome. The passages that we have here are talking about people that are never really Christians to begin with, and it's the third of these three where we fall as a body of, 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 of people that are reformed in our way of thinking, who, who look at, scripture and say that what we believe about God and the church and who he is and who we are comes straight from this not from some tradition or anything like that but straight out of the word of God and if we look at that what becomes evidence is that these passages are talking about people who said they were Christians but never really were and that's where our passages become really difficult because how do you know how do you know and the answer is that it's a heart issue. And so there's there's in a way an answer to a problematic passage like this. No. A Christian who is born again, who is under Christ, who has crucified through Christ cannot be at a loss for salvation. If you are a, a, a genuine believer, if you have committed your life to Christ, if you have proclaimed him as your Lord and Savior and you, you walk with him in his ways and you seek to live a life after Christ, there is no height nor depth that can separate you from the love of God. You don't have to go home and be scared and wonder but on the other hand, there is an element to which we say, am I really a follower of Christ? One of the things we've seen a lot over the past decades, especially in the West, and in Europe and, and, and here, uh, is we've, we've had this kind of run of cultural Christianity that's coming to an end. Probably in the last 20-ish years or so. It's sped up in the past decade, but really we're, you know, probably early it's the change of the millennium. We've started to see a real slowdown of cultural Christianity. What I mean by that is 30 years ago, if you walked around town on a Sunday morning and you saw somebody jogging that wasn't in church when church was happening, they were strange. We'd wonder what's wrong with them. Why aren't they in church? Right? Well, they're probably Jewish or Muslim because <laughs> what, what other option, Right. It was cultural Christianity. It was a normative thing to be Christian. The question you would ask somebody when you met them isn't, do you go to church, but where do you go to church? Oh, you go to that church. Right? The way we judged people was based off of the churches that they went to. And some we liked, some we didn't like, and, and whatever. But now, it is in no way assumed. Cultural Christianity has kind of died. And so, there was this era where the church could do no wrong. Everything it did drew people. Right? Sometimes we reminisce about it. The Sunday school rooms used to be full. If you say the words Sunday school outside of church walls today, people cringe. Why do I want to go to school on Sunday? That's dumb. I go to school five days a week. Why would I go Sunday? It's my weekend. We don't use terms like that anymore. They've become weird and antiquated in a culture that no longer functions the way that church culture does. And so it's no longer beneficial in any way culturally to call yourself a Christian. And, and I bet you could name people that used to be a part of this church that are now not part of any church. They're just not around. It's not because they moved. It's not because, you know, maybe, maybe it started because of COVID, but it's not now because of COVID anymore. Right? Whatever those excuses are, they're just not around anymore. Even now, the average attendance of somebody who is who does call themselves a Christian in church, the average attendance is about one to two times a month. And church attendance doesn't measure your level of Christian faith by any stretch of means, but it's, it can be an indicator. It can be a health barometer to some degree. And what we see is we live in a world where it's no longer culturally beneficial, and so people fall away. Right? Now that that push is gone, it's quite costly to be a Christian And so I actually believe that the Church of Christ hasn't really shrunk at all over the past 30 years. It's just consolidated. What we've seen is people who were cultural Christians slowly fade off the map because there was no longer any benefit to them for being here. As a matter of fact, more of their friends and neighbors looked at them funny for being in this building than didn't, and so it just made more sense to not, not be around anymore. And so the reality is this. There is the visible church, what we see in front of us, the expression of all of God's people that are here on Sunday mornings. For whatever reason you're here, maybe you're here because a friend invited you, maybe you're here because a parent makes you come every Sunday, or a grandparent, or an aunt or an uncle makes you come, or coerces you somehow, or bribes you. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's people in church because they get paid to come by some relative who's just really invested in having them here. And that's okay. right? But... That, that's more and more what we see. And so the, the statistics would tell us that in a room of about 100 people, there's, there's got to be five to 10 that really aren't Christians to begin with. Even if they might say they are. And, and that is, is a hard thing because there's no test that I could necessarily hand you if you're like, well, is that me? I, there's, there's really no words of, of comfort that I could offer you that would help you navigate somehow, whether that's you or not. It's a heart issue. And it's a heart issue in two ways. Number one, we have to understand when we look at other people that we have no way of knowing the genuineness of someone's faith. We can kind of think, I guess, but as the Lord said, If if salvation is secure, if he has chosen them as God's elected people, then there's no height or depth that can separate them from the love of God. They might go through a slump. They might experience a time of distance from God. And you might be able to see that distance in them. But that doesn't mean that they're not genuine followers of Christ. That doesn't mean that you have no idea what could happen to them five years from now, three months from now, ten years from now. So when we we look at this, the first thing we have to do is look at other people and just acknowledge that there is no way of knowing who is or isn't genuine in their faith. And so we just assume the best of intentions, and we just love the people that are in our midst. Well, so-and-so hasn't been in church forever. It doesn't seem like they care. They're probably not a real Christian. You have no idea if that's the case. Don't judge that. You don't know. Love them. Care for them. Call them. Invest in them. Ask them where they are. But don't don't level hate upon somebody for not being around because you have no idea what the Lord is doing in their life. I've known people that have ditched the church for 20 years only to come back because somehow their children draw them back in and they get reinvested and they recommit their life and they're walking faithfully with the Lord. They're serving as elders now in churches all over the place. We don't know what the Lord is doing in the lives of other people. And so the first thing when we look at this is we have to understand, don't judge Others and their journey of faith because you don't know what God is doing. So, the only thing left to do then is to look at your own heart. What about the self? How can we know whether we are real or not? Vince, I'm worried. I'm worried that I'm not a genuine Christian. What do I do? How do I know? How do I understand? It's not a lighthearted question. This is serious stuff. Every single person who I know who is a Christian at some point or another has questioned the the, the genuineness of their faith. They've questioned where they sit with God. They questioned why they're really in it. They've questioned if their heart truly is given to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. And so if that's you, don't feel isolated. You're not alone. Your pastor even is with you. In a serious segment of time in college as I'm studying to be a youth pastor where I'm starting to think, like, is this really what I, is this just kind of what I defaulted into? Or is this the real deal? Like, am I sold out to, to this Jesus? Or did I just have a lot of friends that were sold out to Jesus and they were cool and I wanted to be cool? Right? You do some soul searching. That's a, a natural part of the rhythm of a, a follower of Christ. But one of the answers that's helpful is this. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Search your own heart. Do you have, when you are encountered with the gospel, when you become confronted with the reality that Christ died for you, that you were hopeless and helpless, and he saved you and picked you up, What happens in your heart when you hear that message? Does it evoke a joy and a humility and a desire to to attach yourself to the King, to Jesus, the Savior? To walk along with Him, to seek Him? Does it attach a desire inside of you to, to open this up? I'm not saying you want to read every part or that it's even easy to understand. Do you have an innate desire to know more? In other words, do you go, I don't really know everything there is to know about God, but there's this thing here that could teach me, and I really want to know. And I don't know how, but I want to seek help because I have a curiosity about the things of the Lord, and I want to seek him more, and I want to know more about him, and I want to know how to follow him better. And I know I'm not great at it, but I have this this innate thing in my heart that just causes me to want to move in that direction. In other words, are you drawn to Jesus? be a surefire sign that there's a genuine faith taking place inside of your heart? Right? Or are you just kind of here? Are you here because you're worried that if you weren't, people would look at you funny? Are you here because you're scared that if you don't come for the next couple of weeks, some elders might call you and it'd be awkward? And if you knew that no one was ever going to call you, you would just kind of stop coming? Because you're just really not that invested Are you here because it's what you've done for the past 40 years? And you're not even really sure why. You see, this is a passage that calls us and invites us to search our own hearts. It's not about whether Christians can lose their salvation. They can't. It's about asking yourself, are are you really in this? Are you sold out to the Lord because Jesus presents you with the gospel. He confronts you with the reality of who you are apart from him. And then he tells you the identity that you have with him. And you're just enamored and sold out to that. And you go, yes, Lord, I want to receive that. Whatever it costs, bring it on. Doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you won't stumble. That doesn't mean you'll have phases where you're feeling distant from Him or where you, you still walk in sin because we are still sinners. We live in this already, not, but not yet. And so it's not that every time you do things that aren't godly, you somehow have to worry and throw your hands up in the air, right? But ask yourself is your heart a heart that wants to pursue the Lord, that responds to the gift of grace with gratitude and an eagerness to move forward? And if that's not you, I would start to think and pray deeply about that. Do you find yourself thirsty for the things of God? And do you want to know him more? In the end, verses like this should serve to instill not fear in Christians, but hope. Your salvation doesn't depend on you. If it did, man, you'd be screwed, and so would I. Genuinely, if you've ever thought, Right? Man, I look at me like there's no way God could love me. Exactly. There's no way God should love you, but he does. Just because. For his own glory and his own honor and his own edification, he just loves you. So if you don't think you deserve it, guess what? You don't, but you've got it anyway. So smile. <laughs> God loves you. Right? And move forward to that. But for those for whom God is saved, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. And so the answer to the question of can a Christian lose their salvation, if they are a genuine follower of Christ who has sold themselves out to the Lord, their heart belongs to him and is seeking after him, then no, there is nothing. There is neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything on earth or in heaven that can separate you from the love of Christ. Let's pray. God, we we're grateful. We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you chose us. We're grateful that you care deeply for us. We're grateful. We're grateful that you would care enough to love us deeply to pick us up from the depths of who we were and to move us towards newness. So Lord, we pray in gratitude for those of us who know that our hearts belong to Christ because we're just sold out to him. Lord, we we pray that for anybody that's struggling through that in this room or online, that you might just grant them a peace. That You might allow them to see not only you clearly, but them clearly. You would confront them with the truth of the gospel in the clearest, most concise, peaceful terms. And they might see themselves for who they really are. We pray for discernment. For in the end, our faith is something that only we can know. Be with us as we wrestle with our own identities. And Lord, we praise you that for those of us who are in Christ, our identity is provided by you. We don't have to wonder who we are. You tell us. We are children of God. and We love you and we thank you. And all his people said.